Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog, and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. When I began to envision this podcast series, I knew I wanted to have parenting conversations with groups of moms about how things are going and how we can learn from one another, a parent group. I am so excited that today we are having a parent group with three amazing women, passionate, caring moms. I'm going to take a minute to introduce the members of today's parent group. Lady Ashley Shaw Scott Ajay is the Global Head of Research for Ajay Associates, an international architecture firm. She is a native Californian and currently lives in Ghana with her husband and two children, a son Kwame, who is six, and a daughter Adwa, who is three. Monique Payan is an artist, designer, and activist based in New York City. She's widely known and celebrated for her structural work with jewelry, featuring rare, sustainably gathered materials, including fossilized dinosaur bone and meteorite specimens, ranging in age from tens of thousands to billions of years old. She has a daughter, Sen, six, and a son, Thames, three. Anne Williams-Isom will be known to Ground Control Parenting podcast listeners as one of our earliest guests in season one. She currently serves as the James R. Dumpson Endowed Chair in Child Welfare at the Graduate School of Social Service at Fordham University. Previously, she served as the CEO of the Harlem Children's Zone. She's a longtime resident of Harlem, where she lives with her husband and where she raised her three children, Ayanna, who's 27, Philip, 25, and Andy, 19. Here we have two sets of moms, moms of very young children, three and six, and moms of much older children. And I wanted to get us all together to talk about the challenges and the opportunities of parenting through the pandemic. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Ashley, Monique, and Anne. <laughs> I so appreciate that you all could join me here today, and I'm so excited to get our conversation started. Yay, we are happy to be here. I was musing about which group of parents were going to have the hardest time or were having the hardest time with this pandemic. I mean, was it the parents of the littlest ones uh, who were dealing with the socialization issues and, 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 or the middle ones who were dealing with schooling or the older ones whose children's lives were uprooted? I just want to go around and ask everybody, basically, how have you been managing the pandemic? And Monique, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to go from you to Ashley, the parents of the younger children. I want to hear about that first. So Monique, how's it been going? It's going well. Um, you know, it's had its challenges, its ups and its downs for sure. Uh, 13 months into this, I think we're all settling into some sort of new normal um, and embracing the craziness. Uh, I feel very fortunate to have both of my children back in school in small pods, and that has made uh, life a, a lot more palatable. Um, but there definitely are challenges for sure. You know, how much you explain about what's going on with regards to COVID-19 um, to a three-year-old and to a six-year-old, you don't want to invoke fear. You want to make sure that they understand that this won't be forever. Um, there are definite challenges that we've faced uh, with regards to how much technology, how much screen time should a young child have. Um, explaining why they're not able to see their friends. But there have also been many positive aspects to this in terms of being able to spend so much quality time with our young children when we normally wouldn't be able to do so. Um, so I think, you know, really taking everything one day at a time, um, focusing on the positive, um, 
reaching out when you need help and realizing that friends, while you may not be able to see them physically, are just a phone call or a text away. Um, you know, even texting with Ashley, um, who is across the world, um, has made it more mal- manageable. Um, and being able to reach out to mothers who you know are in a similar similar situation. And I must say that one of the most positives has actually been, you know, the balancing act of trying to figure out how to keep your head on straight while being a role model, an excellent role model to your children um, and maintaining positivity in your household. Uh, I found a lot of comfort in in terms of listening to other podcasts. So I'm thrilled to be on yours. Thank you for having us. Um, and thrilled to be learning from other women who and other mothers who I admire. Um, but podcasts and actually um, Audible Books on Tape has been amazing for me in terms of, you know, being able to balance cleaning and coming up with activities and how to entertain my children in an apartment in New York City when we can't spend as much time outside as we would normally if we weren't in, in, in during COVID times. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to come back to several things you've said, but I want to go around first. So, so Ashley, you're in Ghana. Um, lockdown was slower to get there. Is that right? Because it, it wasn't as immediate as it was in the States. So actually I would say lockdown was faster and more definite than, oh. so at the beginning of March, 2020, the country closed, the borders closed, you couldn't get out, you couldn't come in. And that lasted until September. So I think having a very decisive uh, governmental directive on how um, they were going to maintain and keep the numbers low was really helpful to flatten our curve very early on. So our numbers, of course, it's a much smaller country, but our numbers um, have have been quite low uh, compared to, for example, the U.S. or the U.K. or um, or European countries, for example. Uh, that said, because it was a serious lockdown and it was a, a relatively long lockdown, uh, it meant that we had a pod quite early on. Because we live in a compound that has 18 homes, there are, most of those homes are families with children. And so there are about 13 kids who are in this gated community. So we had a natural pod at that, Mm -hmm. um, and all of our, our houses face each other. So all of the kids pour out into the road. And when lockdown was very intense, we would do it in shifts, so we would maintain uh, six feet distance. And but once regulations eased up, we really we we essentially had our own environment, and so so I felt incredibly fortunate, um, particularly because in London, where we moved from, it would have been very very difficult to to do the same thing. We live in a apartment block. Um, where there might be two families out of a uh, hundred flats. So it would have been a very different environment for us. Additionally, we were able to hire a teacher, a full-time teacher to teach my daughter and my uh, neighbor's son 
because they were close in age. And then we were able to hire a tutor that helped my son with the online curriculum. So we were really able to recreate school in a in a new way. And so COVID for me was a chance to reevaluate how I parented and how involved I was in my children's academic life. I didn't realize um, until, because you're not allowed in the classroom, um, until COVID, when you are sitting next to your child in this virtual learning environment, and you realize, oh, wait, you know, Kwaku could really read. Kwame, what are you doing? <laughs> what is going on here? <laughs> um, and it really, it was a wake-up call for me to, to realize, oh, actually, I need to get more involved. And, um, and I thought I was an involved parent. And, um, and what I didn't realize is what my child really needed um, and what he was ready for. And, and this environment where I was able to peer into his academic life, I realized, oh, wow, you, you know, you can actually read that and we can get there. And you, you know, love dinosaurs. And so let's find out how to use that as a vehicle to really improve your counting and your writing and all of these different aspects of your academic life. So um, so COVID was a great wake-up call for me. Um, and, I, and I would say it's the same for my three-year-old daughter, how I approach her learning now. Great, great. You and your husband had a pretty busy travel schedule before COVID. So COVID enabled you guys to actually see each other on a regular basis. Yes. <laughs> is, that, is that right? This is 100%. So but I think my husband probably traveled about... 45 weeks out of a year. Um, and that at any given week could be three or four countries. So um, he, with the responsibilities that he had and with the expectations of his clients, he felt like he had to be everywhere. And with Zoom and with all types of technology, we all came to the realization that, no, we don't have to be in all these different countries, we can actually be together as a family and have a family, um, a very normal, so to speak, schedule where my husband reads every night now with our son. And that was not even an option in our previous existence. That is so great. Okay, now to the older moms. (laughs) So funny, Carol, because I'm sitting here thinking two things. One is, You've got to do a podcast about what parents are learning about education now and how that's Mm -hmm. going to affect their relationships with teachers and schools moving forward. Because people now are like, oh, okay, now I see what this thing is supposed to look like. So they will have more respect, but they're they're informed consumer now. And then I'm also thinking the difference between younger, um, uh, the younger um, uh, wives and the older wives. So when you're married for 30 years, the idea of being with your husband 24-7, you're like, oh, that's this kind of <laughs> so that's a different podcast. I will, <laughs> I will talk about, I have to be honest, um, I would not want to be homeschooling right now. And I do look at my um, my friends who have younger children and I can't even imagine what that is like. But I must say, and Carol knows this because one of the crises that I went through was that my 19 um, my year old was graduating, she was 18 at the time, graduating from high school. 
So she missed high school graduation, right? Which is like um, insane. And my oldest missed her law school graduation and they were a week apart. And I spent a year like planning what we were gonna do and how we were gonna be different. And we didn't have those milestones. And so it was very interesting to kind of check my own morning of that and find a way to get through that. The 19 year old was like, I have just done Zoom school for three months. I cannot do Zoom school in college. And I called up Carol and I was like, I'm gonna send her to college, but I wanna make up a pod for her of like a RA or somebody who can watch over her when she's in this new city. So I am jealous of the fact that your three and six years old can't go somewhere without you and you have control over them. <laughs> they're 28, 20, you know, 25 and, and 18, they're out in the world. So they're out in this COVID world too. And I was nervous, is she gonna get COVID? My, my uh, 90 year old mother lives with us. My 80 year old, 81 year old father-in-law lives not too far from us. So we were just trying to protect everybody. And it turns out, too long of a story to tell, but that the youngest did get COVID when she went to school. So if you can, that feeling that you have about your younger children and protecting them, imagine getting the call that your 19 year old is by herself in a dorm room somewhere with now this thing that I knew she probably wouldn't have bad um, uh, you know, symptoms, but what will that mean when she's 30 years old? What will the long-term effects be? Um, the, and really quickly, Carol, the issues that we, ha I had to deal with in parenting were, um, Ayana started a new job at a law firm online, still is online and didn't get to socialize and go to lunch with friends. And, you know, she's at a law firm. I won't say which law firm and you guys can only imagine how freaking boring that is to be a first year <laughs> online. The poor child, I feel like I need to put her on suicide watch. <laughs> her boyfriend moved in with each other. So that was a big lifetime change. He started business school. The My son had an, I won't say a breakup with his girlfriend, but a, a change in the status of their relationship that he was trying to work through in a new job. And so these things, Carol, that, you know, people are like, oh, it's not such a big deal to do that in the midst of this really scary pandemic, us being separated and we're super close. And then I know we'll get into this a little bit more, but they're black young adults in the midst of a social unrest and they're out there protesting with masks on. I didn't know if I was more nervous about COVID getting them or police shooting them in the back for um, protesting. And it was this crazy amount of stress in trying to just, my husband and I stay calm and to give them as much um, support and openness and do a lot more listening than I feel like I have done in my 30 years of parenting before this. Wow, that's, that's great. I, I'll just briefly add in, because I don't think I've talked much about our family's um, uh, response to this. So um, I will have to credit my husband because very early days, he convened all the children. He sat us all down and he had us all uh, focus on mental wellness. He said, this oh. is going to be the challenge for all of us to stay uh, to, to stay mentally well. And he said to the children, what will you need? What do we all need? But what specifically will you each need to, do you think you'll need to, to help you stay mentally well? So they all went off and did a PowerPoint. I'm not kidding. It's not <laughs> <laughs> but my husband's work, you know, their PowerPoint, it was a joke, but they did a PowerPoint <laughs> and, and they came up with the things. I mean, and they ranged from um, sort of gym related equipment to be able to work out if they couldn't leave, you know, their spaces and um, thinking about sort of food needs and transportation needs. And it was, it was actually, 
Uh, and and the, the requests were pretty simple, but it was a great way to feel like we were this unit, even though we weren't all physically together, trying to battle through the unknown. And um, as one who experienced 9-11 in New York City, that feeling um, of, okay, something very different and very scary is happening right now, and I've got to really pull it together and figure out what steps to take one at a time, which I had during the 9-11 crisis, came back to me in, in not a bad way, in a good way. It's like, okay, I know this is weird and, and strange and, and scary, but we're going to figure out how to move through this. And so... The, so the, the challenge was really, a lot of it was um, psychological. You know, when you have children in their 20s, as a parent, you can remember where you were in, when you were their ages, exactly, and what you were doing and what you were thinking. I mean, more so than you can when they're toddlers or even, you know, middle schoolers. I can remember when I was 25. The good thing about that is there's empathy. The bad thing about that is that you kind of project right. how you might have handled something at that age because you have such a clear memory of it. So the challenge was to um, not do that and <laughs> not, and not make, put myself, have so much empathy that I was trying to live their COVID lives for them, um, which came into play in terms of the risks that we were willing to take. I mean, I was happy to never leave my house and, and they were more willing to take risks. In terms of opportunities, we are we were a close family and we remained a really close family and it was very encouraging. All that work that you guys put into the little ones and you wonder, you know, are they getting the values? Are they getting the morals? Are they are they listening to you? Will they are we a unified group? <laughs> and and you know, a lot happens between 3 and 6 and 20 and so you know, there's family skirmishes and there's stuff and so it was very reassuring to see that not only were we a family unit that really looked out for one another, cared about one another and wanted to help each other, but independent of the parents, the children were very um, right. supportive of one another. My oldest and my youngest are seven years difference. They actually lived together for a good part of the quarantine. And I was so happy to see their bond even grow stronger. So Hey, sibling love. Yeah, yeah. You know, I hate to sound maudlin, but you know, time's passing and nothing like sitting in a one place for a year to realize that you're aging and, and the time is going on. It's very comforting to know that that bond is going to be there wherever I am. Amen to that. It's very comforting. But, um, but Monique, I want to go back to something you said. I have a really, I have some really basic questions since I don't have these issues. Is it tough getting a three and a six-year-old to put on masks? And you, and how did you explain COVID to them? All good questions. Uh, we had a very different situation um, than Ashley, which your situation sounds incredible. Um, but obviously, we've all had our challenges. Being in an apartment in New York City, um, my ch children only saw each other for six months. And we really didn't see any other families. Um, I grew up with severe asthma, and I was too afraid uh -huh. to expose um, our family to COVID. And having been in the hospital many times, not being able to breathe, it was just something I wanted absolutely nothing to do with. So the bond that built um, naturally between my children has been incredible to see. And I think that it is something that will, you know, they'll have for the rest of their lives. And so I'm very fortunate um, that that has been the case. And then when school opened back up in September, it was going from this pure isolation of having seen less than five people um, and having had them not see any other children to going back to school. So it was really quite a change, but they had a, you know, zero tolerance with regards to uh, taking off your mask, you wouldn't be able to come back to school. And I think that, 
the children were just so excited to be back in the classroom um, that they didn't really have any questions. And they're so young that they're adaptable. So it wasn't really that challenging to get them to wear the mask. And I think they also, you know, they understood that there's a virus and that the virus won't be here forever, but there is a virus and that we just need to protect ourselves and take measures just like the way that we take a probiotic or we take a vitamin, we have to wear our mask and trying to take the fear out of it, giving them the information. They really are receptive and so intelligent, even at young ages, and they trust you. So as long as you're giving them the knowledge that they need and you're showing confidence that they're willing to be receptive and, and listen. Wow. Wow. That's great. Um, I, I want to shift because I'm, I, um, there's so much that I would love to talk about and, and, uh, but I want to shift now to something that Anne, Anne mentioned, um, on top of the natural concern we all had about COVID, there was the social justice issues. There's the George Floyd murder. There was so much happening, impacting everyone, but especially impacting African Americans over the course of this year that we've been in lockdown. And we've all had the experience of trying to work, talk to our children about these things. Ashley, I just want, I want to start with you because you were in another country, you're in a predominantly black country. And how was that all viewed in terms of, and if you could talk a little bit about your, your journey to that country, that would be great. Sure. So we moved in August of 2019 to Accra, Ghana, the capital. And our move was a driven by two things. One was my husband opened an office here in Accra to fulfill some of the commissions that he had and to really explore the built environment on the continent. In our personal lives, we found that our son, who was, when he was about three in a nursery, was experiencing um, what we felt was racism and, and what we felt was uh, being singled out as the only black child in the classroom mm -hmm. while other children might be having, you know, doing the same behavior that he was, he was the one who would get called out. He was the one who was, uh, the school actually asked me to bring in my nanny who normally would be watching my daughter to then come into the school and watch my son while he was in school. Mm. And, so I was struggling to understand what is it about my son that is making it so difficult for you to teach? Um, and so it, it progressively got worse to a point where we ended up leaving the school. At the same time, there was, there was we have uh, food delivery services um, in, in the UK, and I won't name this service, but the, the one morning at 8.30 or so, um, I had a, a grocery delivery coming and I was it's still in my pajamas. It was early. My two kids were in their pajamas. Uh, we live in a, um, a grade two listed building, which just means it's a historic building in the, in the UK. And I open the door and there is a delivery person who then says, is this your house or, you know, your flat? And for me, it was just, it, it was like being kicked in the stomach because mm -hmm. what scenario would I be in my pajamas with <laughs> two black children in their pajamas 
and this would not be my house. How could I work here and have two kids? Right. <laughs> Did I come in and rob the place in my pajamas and open the door? <laughs> in what scenario would this not be my house? So as these small and large aggressions kept happening, it became more clear to us that this was not the environment that we wanted to raise our kids. And so between that and opening a new office, we said, okay, let's try Accra. Um, so Accra has, it was a extraordinary um, transition to come into this environment. And I'm from Oakland, California, which I would consider when I grew up was a black city. You know, it's obviously diverse, but there's a very strong black middle class, lower class, upper class. There's just a large black population there. Mm -hmm. And so I've had a very strong foundation for black culture, black American culture. Um, But to come to a country that was black and to raise our children in in a place where the majority was black, um, was extraordinary. It, it has been a extraordinary experience for my children to, um, their doctor is Black. Their uh, teacher is actually Indian, which is great because there is some diversity here, but um, but our nannies are Black. They, um, you know, their dentist is Black. They're, they have so many, their, their president is Black. They have so many different images of Blackness in their daily lives, which we didn't have before, which I was afraid was going to lead to uh, a feeling of, of isolation. Um, and so here, that is, that is not a fear. Um, mm-hmm. And I realized that, you know, not everybody can pick up and go to Ghana, but Um, but some can, and I can't tell you how many friends have come to me and said, you know, I'm, I'm this close to just Mm -hmm. figuring out how to make this move. Um, and so part of me is like, okay, some people will actually move, but the people I grew up with in, in Oakland, they know Capri better than they know, you know, Nigeria. They know South of France better than they know Senegal. They know, you know, so, um, so part of it is I, I really want to encourage people to come to the continent and to come with their families and experience it with their families. And we made the very conscious shift away from the West and towards Africa, towards Ghana, because we felt that we were going to have more emotional uh, freedom here and that our kids would be able to have a foundation um, that would allow them to really blossom um, without, I think, what often happens in places like Um, New York or London, where I've lived, is that there's so much imagery, there's so much outside of what you control as a parent that your Mm -hmm. child Mm -hmm. absorbs, um, that they might end up feeling, oh, well, you know, the ideal is blonde hair and blue eyes. And that's not something you've ever said, but that's something that is reinforced by just their environment. So for us, it was like, let's take them out of that environment and put them in an, an environment that reflects who they are and a very consistent 
basis. And here I really have been able to see my children blossom with their own, um, in their own personalities at their own pace. And I haven't had to feel so protective, which I felt in the UK. And I also would have felt in the US, again, as you talked about, Anne, with, you know, being afraid that your child was going to get shot or hurt or jailed uh, for being a, a peaceful protester. Um, so my my little peaceful protest was to say, I will teach you American history, but I am not going to bring this to you at this age. Um, and mm-hmm. having, I felt extraordinary liberty in having that ability to mm-hmm. not have to tell them why George Floyd was killed. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So, Monique, you were in the, you, you, you live near protests. So your little ones, um, it wasn't an issue for you to tell them. <laughs> they, they were sort of, they were sort of part of it. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure. We live in downtown Manhattan. So we were in the midst of protests um, and used it as a teaching moment. Um, there were helicopters above us and we couldn't sleep. Um, and we woke up to Black Lives Matter protesting and we went to try to go to sleep to Black Lives Matter protesting, which was um, challenging, but uplifting at the same time to see the allyship and to see people of all different colors, all different genders, um, all different races getting together to march in solidarity um, with the BIPOC community, with Blacks, um, talking about, you know, the issues that we're facing um, with regards to social justice. And it was an opportunity to teach, an opportunity to get out there on our deck and to make Black Lives Matter protests um, posters and to start protesting um, and joining the movement. And using it as an opportunity to talk to a three-year-old and a six-year-old about how we are Black, um, about how we have been marginalized, um, talking about what do they see and what do they wonder. I think that for young children, asking them what they want to know, what do they see and what do they wonder is really important because sometimes as a parent, you don't always have the right words. Um, I don't have a PhD in social justice. And while I'm constantly learning, um, and trying to learn as much as possible to be the best parent that I can be. Sometimes just asking them, what do they see and what would they like to know um, allows them to be part of the conversation, uh, which I think is really important. And so for me, that was a, a really wonderful opportunity to, to learn from them and to get them involved and have them be part of the protest. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been challenging. Um, I've spent a lot of time doing a lot of research um, up at night to learn about how to educate my children. Um, There are some wonderful guides from experts, diverse experts in social justice um, that I have uh, Mm -hmm. used and I'm happy to share with um, uncontrolled parenting that have been super useful. Um, Guides on racism for Black families, for families of color, and for white families. Um, so that's been really helpful, but also seeing it through a child's lens, you know, having my six-year-old come home and having the teacher's call saying that, you know, in the mornings when they say, 
how are you feeling today? Having um, a little girl of color saying, I'm worried. And I'm worried that my mom is going to get shot because of the color of her skin. Those are real issues and not issues that we can ignore. Um, And when you know that these biases are created as young as 18 months, the research shows, it is super important um, to be able to educate your children and to give them the tools that they need um, to start thinking about um, diversity and race. Monique, we don't know each other well yet, but I will tell you this. I walk around my house saying that I have a PhD in Ayana, Philip, and Andy. And so all the other information that you're going to get is going to help you parent, but you are the expert. And so, Carol, we have to do a, another podcast that's going to talk parenting in the age of Trump and how that, how does one raise Black children with all of these images coming at them to have a sense of hope? and a sense of, of the future and all of those things. So it's been, it's been a very challenging time, mm-hmm. I think, to raise Black children. And, and Monique, what's interesting is that you, you are biracial and, and your children are biracial, as your, your husband is white. And so for your children, it, it is, um, and for you and for your children, history is important, but it's, it's a slightly different history. I mean, you have histories two cultures. So I really find it fascinating and good that your children um, have been exposed to this and and can come to you with their sense of wonder. I remember you saying something about they're questioning what color they were because they were focused on the actual color. Sure, absolutely. When we were protesting for Black Lives Matter and I said, you know, we're Black. And my son (laughs) said, I'm not Black. And I said, Grandpa Leslie is Black. I'm Black. And he's like, no, he's not. And he thinks of black as the color, you know, mm-hmm. as dark as the color black. And I said, have you ever seen a white person? No. Right. White is the color of a wall. So these explaining social constructs to them and explaining how these are names that groups of people have been given and talking about oppression and talking about celebrating our differences, talking about our identity and talking about shared humanity is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think talking about race from a positive perspective, like talking about what makes somebody someone? What are the different characteristics of an identity? And um, talking, having diverse protagonists and being able to have, you know, different skin colors and tones of crayons and the skin, the skin color crayons and markers are so important. Um, being able to show them diversity in all aspects of the way that they're engaging through art and reading, I think is super important. And having it also be positive and not just negative. Oh, absolutely. You know, I've, I've thought a lot in, in all of my um, work about the challenges that parents of kids of color have in maintaining this balance between wanting to protect our children and arm them with enough information about the way the world actually is so that when they walk out into it, they aren't startled, they aren't psychologically damaged to, to understand that is it's different than the cocoon of home. So they need to know that history, but you also want to raise a really confident, bold child who feels um, that they walk with freedom. I mean, just like everyone else does, and and they don't have to bear the burden of whenever they walk into a store and a security guard is looking at them funny that this means they have to be less than or that it sort of shrinks them a little. You know, um, Anne and I have raised our kids in schools that are predominantly white. And um, Ashley, I was thinking about what you were saying about being the target. It has been such a challenge that we continually um, talk about and and wonder about to have our children get their sense of selves from this in this diverse community 
you know, at home, you pride, you give them as much sort of information and, and um, heritage and pride, and you just hope they can carry it with them when they go out. But, but to your point, Ashley, when they're out in a sea of kids that don't look like them, it's harder for them to, um, it, 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 there are instances where it's harder for them to, to um, feel proud. And that's where teachers come in and that's where um, that PhD in parenting and <laughs> I also think you know, the difference between a boy and a girl and mm-hmm. that's something that I was also concerned about the the expectation of um, violence with black boys the expectation that um, black boys are going to be um, less teachable that the things that were starting to slowly appear, uh, I was really concerned about, but also with my daughter, where I didn't think those issues would happen. I was concerned about her hair, for example, mm-hmm. and that you know, she comes to school in an Afro and she's the only child, only black child in her class, you know, are kids going to be playing with her hair and, you know, saying things about the, her hair and making her feel uncomfortable um, about that or about something that is quite specifically part of her blackness. Whereas when I, the, the opportunity we felt we had in Ghana was to put her in a room full of girls with braids and afros and pigtails and um, and uh, different shades of, uh, of skin, but all with a baseline knowing that that her blackness was very normal and and that was and not fetishized and not um, denigrated in any way. My uh, youngest did a senior speech when she graduated in May and Ashley she tells a story about not getting invited to a sleepover with a group of girls when she was probably six because they said, well we can't do your hair in the morning. She never told that story. At 18 was the first time that I heard her tell that story. But her speech was a very, very powerful conversation about identity and about how do I figure out who I am? And like you said, Carol, taking in the negative clearly, but also trying to find the positive and the strength in that. You mentioned hair and that reminded me, I said earlier that teachers are really critical here. And my youngest had an incident where the teacher, white teacher, really um, was able to see a situation and make it better. When he was in second grade, he wasn't the only black child in his class, but there were few, and people liked to touch his hair, apparently. This is all unbeknownst to me, but it was bothering him that people were touching his head regularly. And the teacher noticed that this was happening, and she asked, um, she talked to him, took him aside and talked to him, and he said, explained that he didn't like people touching her his hair. Some teachers might have just said, oh, they're just being, you know, silly or not understood the import of a young black child and the hair touching. She called a little class session and had him sit in the front of the room and explain that he didn't like to have his hair touched and that he liked his hair. People could sort of they could like his hair, too, but they couldn't touch his hair. And the teacher used that as an opportunity. She let him speak. And then she gave a class a lesson about differences and embracing differences and that people were different. And so we have to respect the way that we interact with people who are different. And I learned none of this. He told me nothing. <laughs> I, I I went to a 
teacher parent kind of reception. And as an aside, I would advise all parents to always do that. You always want to talk to teachers at a cocktail hour when they're going to talk to you more about things that actually happened in the classroom. Um, and the teacher told me what happened. I very much liked the fact that the teacher got it. She understood this was an issue, not of somebody touching someone, their shoulder, their elbow, but the hair part was critical. So in order for this diverse world to work, you need allies across the races. And so parents, I would definitely encourage you to find those allies in the teachers in your school. There's a really wonderful book called Curls about having beautiful black curly hair. Um, but I, you know, have had some of the same challenges and I, it didn't even, I didn't even have the opportunity for it to happen at school. It happened in our own elevator, um, stepping into our elevator to go downstairs from our apartment and the elevator doors opened and a, a white woman and her daughter with blonde hair came into the elevator and my daughter was three and the little girl said, mom, her hair is so ugly. Oh, it's just the four of us in the elevator. And, um, the mother said, her hair is beautiful. And she's like, it's so big. She's a little girl. You know, microaggressions start at such a young age. So making sure that you're giving your children, you know, that sense of empowerment and that you're making them critical thinkers. You know, it's not just for diverse parents. It's also super important for white parents to do the work and to you know, as you said, build those allies um, across different diverse groups. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. we all have a lot of work to do, but it's also super exciting to have, you know, Kamala Harris as our vice president and have my, you know, young children look up to her as a leader and starting to see that, you know, diversity and leadership is, is really wonderful. And I think we're starting to make some strides, but it's, I think, you know, being an ally to the BIPOC and queer folks community, it's work. It's just like being healthy and being fit. You can train for a marathon and you can, you know, be the healthiest version of yourself um, and then go and stop working out for two weeks or two months and <laughs> eat every day. Um, you know, being... Monique, there are so many, There, I feel like there are so many resources now for that work that probably didn't exist when you and I were children um, from books, like you're saying, Curls or like... Um, one of your previous guests, Carol, we we read Please, Baby, Please almost every week. Um, mm -hmm. We read the Kamala Harris book um, about her and her sister Maya almost every week. We have Whose Knees Are These when they were younger. I mean, there are hundreds of books now that I think help us and help, as you said, uh, both said so brilliantly, help allies also normalize the idea that, you know, there were all these different shades and that we have to coexist together. And that, and, and I remember listening to your podcast um, with Tanya and her, she was saying that she wanted to just normalize the being black, like the child, the you know, main character is just a sweet black little girl. And that's kind of the long and the short of it. And, and that's, that's where the beauty of of, I think, um, so many publications now. It, you know, normalizes the key word because 
if you just look at the media, we are either um, uh, victimized or superheroes. <laughs> there's really not a lot of <laughs> right. there's not a lot of middle ground here. <laughs> and you've mentioned all the many podcasts that come out of this. I'm hopeful that we'll be able to continue. But I'm I'm going to wrap up with a quick question. Um, what keeps you guys up at night now, if anything? Wow, can I start? Sure. <laughs> because I was actually saying that I wanted to make sure to mention, and we said it, but the issue of mental health and wellness and healing. I'm trying not to use the word resilience so far uh, so much because it's always like Black people have to go through so much and then we have to like be resilient and get through it. And um, one of the, I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate, I'm, I'm the kind of mom that never really um, sneaked and looked at my children's Facebook or looked at their phones. Cause I was like, I need to do parenting the old fashioned way. If I want to find out if he's been smoking marijuana, I need to look him in the eyes and see what's going on and just kind of <laughs> use my, my skills. I'm not going to go on here. And if I want to find out if they're, you know, they're gay, I need to not be like, just look on Facebook to see what they're saying. <laughs> and so I think I have um, the zooming with them and, and, and saying that I'm going to keep, you know, that we have a weekly family zoom that we do has been very important for me to lay eyes on them mm -hmm. and then just to talk to them and see how they're doing. Because I think this idea of therapy, this idea of getting help, the idea that if you probably haven't been depressed at some point in this pandemic, then that's probably unusual. We know that in the African-American community, there is a stigma on mental health. And so I think that's something, especially when you're raising, we have the ability now, Carol, to kind of say not, you know, our moms and dads didn't tell us that therapy and talking to someone and doing those things was okay. But I think that's an important part of what we should be reminding our young people is that they need to eat well and exercise and meditate and all of those things because they need to think about their own healing and to take care of their emotional and mental health during this very, very challenging time. Mm. Yeah. So that keeps me up because I get I'm I'm worried about that um, in terms of how much they will take care of themselves in that way. So let me understand this: you're staying up late worrying about your children's mental health, <laughs> which <laughs> losing Correct. But I do. You, but you do know me. I take care of myself, and I find ways to deal with that. And I talk about my own therapy, and my own executive coach, and my own Peloton, and my own work, and my own blah blah blah. Okay, good. Monique, what's keeping you up? If anything, maybe you're sleeping well. <laughs> it's a really good question. As you said, this has been really challenging for everyone. And I think that we're in this moment where we're all having a reckoning of consciousness, where we have an opportunity to seize the moment um, and to reimagine community mm -hmm. and to reimagine what a family can be. Mm -hmm. And so that has kept me up at night in terms of like the possibilities to recreate and to reimagine. Um, and so that's what I've been really focused on actually working with a group of PhDs who have their expertise in social justice in K through 12 education um, to create new communities mm -hmm. and to reimagine the way that we can raise our children. Um, and to learn from diverse experts, because so many expert, quote unquote, experts um, are white experts. Mm -hmm. So thinking about, you know, how can we recreate the way that we educate ourselves, not just ourselves, but, you know, our children. Um, like I always thought of myself as a minority. We make up 
people of color make up the majority of people in this world. Mm-hmm. So we need to rethink the way that we frame ourselves. Um, and so I've, I've been really focused on that, improving myself. And it's a constant battle, but it's it's an exciting journey. Um, so I'm trying to to make this a positive a positive moment um, rather than let myself kind of wallow in a downward spiral of depression, which let me say there are those moments oh, too. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say like from a technological perspective, like if going through this pandemic, at least having the ability to have these conversations, like we're not with one another physically, mm-hmm. but this is an enriching way to start my day. And yes. there are conversations like this being had mm-hmm. every day amongst so many brilliant, thoughtful people who um, we can all learn from. So I feel very blessed that we have access to technology to, to be able to connect with one another. So I like what you said about gathering experts and trying to sort of work through problems. That That is definitely, I think, um, something good that has come out of this sort of intense period of reflection and concern and, <laughs> and anxiety. Clearly, this is the beginning of a series because there's so much to talk about. Thanks for sharing your parenting advice. It's been such a pleasure and we'll do this again. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Carol. Bye-bye. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation that you'll come back for more. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review where you find your podcasts and tell your friends. In the meantime, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at www.groundcontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info and advice. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. Please send comments and questions on any of these platforms because we really want to hear from you. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.